This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We are in St. Louis this week, uh, hanging out with some brewers and drinking some beers for the uh, Side Project Invitational Beer Festival. And uh, for this episode of the podcast with Brad Clark of Private Press Brewing, uh, former director of brewing operations for Jackie O's, we are stashed between fooders in the uh, Side Project Brew House. We're in the forest. Welcome to the podcast, Brad. Thank you, Jamie. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So Brad's making a, he's made a unique career leap coming out of a larger kind of production brewing uh, operation at Jackie O's and is in the process of launching Private Press, a kind of bespoke membership only brewing program uh, out of California. Correct. Now. And uh, from what I understand, those memberships start selling in uh, you know early summer and you'll have beer out this fall. We're going to talk to, to Brad about brewing barrel-aged beers. This private press project is solely devoted to barley wines and stouts aged in wood. Correct. Uh, so it's a pretty unique business uh, proposition, and uh, we'll use everything that Brad has learned from making those barrel-aged beers in his past occupation at Jack Yo's. Before we get started, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Sam Adams, and more trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. Old Orchard knows that a strategic seasonal release calendar means higher margins, increased taproom traffic, and secured shelf space for your brand. That's why they collaborate with countless breweries on product development conversations year-round. With unique flavors like watermelon, rhubarb, pineapple, and plum, the possibilities are endless. Get your Old Orchard sample kit with a free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Before we start the conversation, please go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and become a subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. And if you really love to brew, uh, consider the all-access subscription tier, which will give you access to all of our video classes on brewing, one of which, uh, which is uh, relatively new, was filmed right here at Side Project with Corey King, who uh, spends ninety, almost 90 minutes talking about how he brews barrel-aged beers. Uh, so check that out, beerandbrewing.com, all-access. Brad Clark. Yes. Let's talk about you for a minute. Sounds great. <laughs> or for the rest of the minutes of this podcast, <laughs> for that matter. Um, talk to me uh, in the way that we normally do. We normally start off with, uh, you know, talking about your history in brewing. So walk me through it and, uh, you know, relatively quickly, uh, how you became a brewer, how you uh, worked through Jackie O's, and then uh, what led you to make this leap onto your own with Private Press. All right. So, um I got really interested in beer while I was in college. I was going to um, Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. Um, around 2002, uh, I had discovered that there was a small brew pub in Athens named Ohulis. Um, when I was 19, I started going to Ohulis. I fell in love with their pale ale, which is called Ohio Pale Ale. And um, I started going there quite often. And uh, Got a fake ID, 
became a regular, turned 21, and uh, I got a job there in June of 2004 as a door guy and a uh, happy hour bartender. Um, the gentleman that was brewing at Ohuli's at the time had just opened up the Athens do-it-yourself shop, which was a homebrew shop in Athens, Ohio. I told him uh, how I was interested in brewing beer, and he said, we'll come by the shop. And so went by the shop, bought all the equipment, put together my first kit, and started brewing. Within a month, I was kegging, and it had became this great hobby and kind of slowly became part of my lifestyle. Um, Ahulis shortly about a year later went under um, a friend of mine Art Ostrike was interested in getting into the bar business in Athens and I said well you should look into Ahulis because it's going out of business uh, we're not getting paychecks and it's bad news over there so he picked it up he had had some of my home brews I had been extract brewing uh, for a little over a year maybe 30 batches and I was offered the position to be the head brewer at the newly owned Ohulis, which soon became Jackie O's. Uh, so I did my first all grain batch on the seven barrel pub system <laughs> at Ohulis in June, Ooh. early June of what 2006. You know, <laughs> so I, uh, there was a former brewer from Ohulis. His name was Rat. Um, he trained me for two months on a seven barrel brew pub system. It was an old DME. Um, system from the 90s it was in like the like the fermenters up front there were two seven barrel fermenters up front and their serial codes were in the high 200s um, years later when we tried to get replacement parts for them from DME they got back to us and said we have no records of those tanks at that point in time that was <laughs> everything was on paper yeah. and th those files are gone um, so anyways, it was an early system, kind of archaic. There was 1920s UK dairy tanks in the basement. Um, these Grundies, uh, that had these weird retrofitted tops on them. Um, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was rough. Um, <laughs> but that's where I learned how to brew. Right, right. Um, about a year after being on my own at Ohulis, getting about 60 batches under my belt, uh, I then went to Siebel Brewing Institute in 2007 and did their six-week um, associate's degree in brewing theory. And uh, that really changed a lot of things. I really understood ingredients much better. I didn't understand them, but I understand them a little bit better and process and engineering and and Most uh, folks go to Siebel before they start mm -hmm, the brewery, yeah, not yeah. Uh, after. But hey, you know, not me. Start your own path. But once I got back from right, Siebel, right. Uh, I had more confidence, and that's when I started creating um, Imperial Stouts, uh, Imperial Imperial IPAs. They were called double IPAs back then. Um, but uh, you know, started playing around with higher alcohol beers, right. things that you know were a little bit more challenging and required. Um, at the time, what I thought was more skill, but everything requires more skill. But uh, then once I had this Imperial Stout recipe, I was like, well, I really want to start barrel aging. And uh, this was towards the end of 2007. And I went back to Chicago. I met up with Pete Crowley, who was the brewer at the um, Rock Bottom in Chicago, and Will Turner, who was the pub brewer for Goose Island on Clybourne. They were packaging their barrel aged beers for the World Beer Cup that year. And... Uh, they were 
kind enough to allow me to come down to the basement while they were packaging those and they gave me tips on how to get barrels what equipment i needed let me taste some things and uh i bought four woodford um reserve barrels and started this barrel aging um story that i'm getting ready to write a whole new chapter on um now almost 13 years later um, that's yeah those were 2007 is pretty early days you know in, yeah. in that world not the earliest of days but no, still no. very very early on in uh in this whole trend of brewing yeah yeah it was uh athens was uh interesting spot it was southeastern ohio uh about an hour away from columbus there was only one other brewery in southeastern ohio at that time um and there was another brewer for 45 minutes from me so I was kind of on my own. I was in this vacuum and was able to experiment. Um, thank you to the, you know, the owner there and, and just kind of that environment that was fostering this new little brew pub. And uh, so we got to, I got to try out a lot of new, a lot of new things, right. and that kind of helped carve this path of exploring and working with barrels and different ingredients and kind of at the time what was considered extreme brewing and. Uh, you know, as everybody evolved, uh, it's just the beer world just kept changing, but we were changing pretty quick in those earlier 2000s. Sure. Sure. So, and we can talk more about what you've learned through that process Mm -hmm. of making barrel aged beers at Jackie O's, but I'm, I'm, what spurred this idea now to, uh, take, you know, to walk Because over that, over your tenure at Jackie O's, I mean, Jackie O's has grown into a fairly, very large production brewery, producing a lot of beer, packaging a lot of beer and putting a lot of beer out there into the market. Um, you know, it's a pretty bold move to walk away from director of operations for a large concern like that and start a very small bespoke, very, very niche thing, uh, you know, of your own. Yeah. Um, so yeah, growing something from in 2006 was like 180 uh, barrels of production to when I was left, it was close to 14,000. Um, and to grow through that, you know, you, you see a lot of things change. You learn a lot. Uh, your whole perspective on creating beers and volume and how it sells and the marketing becomes more and more important than sometimes the actual creation of the beer um, does. And I, I did enjoy that. I found it very challenging and it was, it was this new area of brewing to explore and to try to champion. So at the end of the day, I had a moment when I was at the brew pub and I was helping out uh, with some of the brewing there and I, I hadn't brewed there in years and uh, it, it just struck me how awesome that little brewery system was and the fact that like one batch of beer was being made that day, just one batch of beer and all of your attention could be on this one you know batch that was moving through this process and to go from starting there falling in love with that system then wanting more and thinking that system was small and archaic and shitty and then building a big brewery with all these bells and whistles and centrifuges and and all this stuff and 120 barrel tanks and then to go back to that and say this is awesome this is where it's at um i knew then that at some point i needed to go back to small i needed to go back to something that was more hands-on and more about the beer um, so it's funny, you know, you're not the only one that I hear that same story from, uh, yeah. you know, oh, I remember yeah. 
talking to John Meyer, the now retired brewmaster for Rogue, for Rogue yeah. a few years ago, and when he brought in some little five barrel uh, SS you know pilot systems into the brewery. I, you know, he would recount it with just this feeling of joy. He's like, I just love being back on the brew deck again. You know, you, as you know, other folks have, have said here on the podcast, you know, as you move through a career, it all ends up in management, you know, as you, yeah. you know, as you, as you, uh, you know, take yeah. on more and more responsibility yeah. and your you time know. on the platform, right. you're less valuable on the platform right. than you are out there in the field or, you know, up right. there in the offices and yeah. Yeah. And so you're it's telling a marketing story or you are managing people and it's not quite the same as making the thing. And it feels mm-hmm. you know connected to get back to that. So why then launch private press, move to California and start this membership only uh, beer brand? Yeah. So um, mo- the move to California was was really easy. Uh, my fiance, um, uh, Dare Paterno, uh, co-founder of Sante Darius lives in Santa Cruz. Uh, we had been long distance for a number of years and it was just a matter of time before we were going to close that gap and right. California was going to be where that was going to happen, not sure. Ohio. Um, and can't so, imagine why you wouldn't want to live in Ohio instead of Santa Cruz. <laughs> Santa Cruz is a beautiful place. I lived in Ohio my entire life. Ohio is beautiful too. Um, but it is great to uh, get out and see something different and I couldn't be happier to be doing California with Adair and uh, starting this new thing. But um, I knew that I had a chance that I could do something on my own. And yeah. I had been thinking about that for a long time. What is that? What does it look like? Uh, what beers are you, am I going to produce? Um, all these different things. And I kept going back to what do I love? What beers do I love to make? What do I feel the most connection to? And that was without a doubt, um, spirit barrel aged, malt forward, high gravity beers, primarily imperial stouts and barley wines. And out of the, um, all the breweries in California, which are, there's a lot of them, not a lot of people are, are making those beers or really focusing on them or they're kind of like a side story to the other beers that they're making. And so I knew that there was a little bit of a, a, a niche there that I could help fill. Um, or they're doing it on a humongous scale, like the brewery. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. right. But, you know, like coming from like the Midwest and Ohio and Michigan and Indiana, sure, there's sure. like every, all the breweries had these The winters are barrel cold. Programs. You, you need yeah. some, yeah. some barrel aged beers. Yeah. Um, and then the question was, well, how do I make just these styles of beer? How do I make small amounts of them? And how can I do this and run the brewery without it running me? And that's when I started thinking more towards just a total membership club-based brewing model that only makes those types of beers that allows pickups and ships direct to customer in the state of California. And I can treat it almost more like a winery than a brewery. I can have a brewing season, packaging seasons, or, you know, a little bit of packaging each season, quarterly releases, and... It's to, uh, you know, uh, active um, membership base. And it really seemed to make sense um, to me because at Jackie O's, on that larger distribution panel, I knew how hard it was becoming to sell beer and to sell volume and how saturated all the markets have become. And shelf space isn't getting any bigger. Giant tap you know, rooms, uh, or, you know, restaurants with 40 taps, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. And there's tap rooms everywhere. 
Sure, and so sure. competition is is real. And because of that, the quality of everything has gotten incredibly high. Um, and, you know, there's a ton of good beer make, being made. There's still bad beer. There always will be. And there sure. always will be good beer. Sure. But I think anybody that really wants to succeed in the brewing world today is really trying which means that the level is just getting so high. And even if you make an incredible beer and has a great name and good branding, it doesn't mean it's going to sell well. Um, and that's just this reality right now. Sure. So I thought, well, if I don't have to compete with all that, I don't have a tasting room. I have this kind of captive membership audience that is interested in what I'm doing, that believes in what I'm doing, and is and I'm giving this exclusive product to them, maybe I've got a chance to exist here without stepping on really anybody else's toes and I can control it um, on many different levels. So that seemed really uh, attractive to me. <laughs> sure. So I've sure. been diving into that as, as, as deep and as far as I can. Yeah. Let's talk about how you're going to produce beer. And then mm -hmm. I want to get into more details about the how and whys of the barrel aged beers that you make and why you make yeah. them that way. Uh, but before we do that, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supply of pro brewing equipment head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear also we now have a special message from pabst brewing company out of the west a storm surprised swept down on captain pabst that mariner and gentleman his actions swift and fast he sailed the seabird against the throws routing twain wind and fear he took haste to protect his kin, but the port was far from near. Pabst's intuition proved him right and bore a friendly coast. The mighty seabird crashed aground, and to that we raise a toast. For while the seabird indeed was lost, safe were kin and crew, and without this mighty ship to steer, Captain Pabst began to brew. Captain Pabst, Seabird IPA exclusively available in Wisconsin and Chicago. So let's talk about uh, making beer because that's what we love to talk about mm -hmm. most here on the podcast. Um, you're building an entire brewery just to brew these beers and you brewed quite a few at Jack EOs and designed a whole bunch over the years. Yep. Um, you know, the uh, oil of Aphrodite's and the dark apparitions and the brick kiln uh, barley wines yep. and uh, uh, the champion grounds, co barely coffee. So I <laughs> it just goes on and on. On There's and on and so on. So many. On. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm pulling them all out of my head because I, you know, I'm very familiar with these impressive. beers and have, have uh, you know, drunk quite a few of them over the years. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, how over the, the last five or eight years, you've watched barrel-aged beers change. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something that I see from our perspective. Um, you know, looking back even six years ago, the very first issues of our magazine, first tackling barrel-aged beers to looking at what we're drinking now. It, um, when you look at it from that kind of perspective, it's rather remarkable how much different the beers are today yeah, completely. in such yeah. a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me from your perspective in terms of grist and grain, in terms of technical process, uh, you know, how have your recipes 
developed, uh, you know, over the last five or six years? Um, the main thing that I think has really changed for the beer style of like Imperial Stout and, and even barley wine is just mainly residual sugar uh, that is left in that beer. Um, when I was originally... It's like Henry says, you got to give the kids their Play-Dohs. Yep, yep. The, yep. <laughs> That's a good one. I'll stick to that one. Um, but, uh, you know, like when I was first brewing like Dark App and Oil of Aphrodite, um, you know, those beers were starting at, you know, 25 Play-Doh and finishing at 5 Play-Doh. Um, Five. That's so retro. I know. I know. It's so watery and thin, and <laughs> um, and you know you can barely you can barely taste it. Um, but uh, you know, so they were that, and, and and that was working for a long time. And then right. you just had to start cranking it up, and then to create things that were finishing at seven or eight Play-Doh seemed really foreign at the time. And now that number is. 10, Still 11, yeah. 15. Um, so it's just like this idea of body, uh, sweetness, uh, thickness is, you know, thick is a word that gets thrown around a lot. And, you know, so as you're kind of creating new beers or updating old beers so that they're still relevant and that they still resonate with the greater uh, consumer, um, it's like, how do you do that? Do you add more malt? Do you mash higher? Do you add more sugar? Do you add more lactose? Do you use maltodextrin? Do you double mash? Um, all of a sudden, you know, there's all these different ways to do it. And that's what I've loved about beer, though, is like there's so many different ways to brew everything. And you just it's how do you approach it? What kind of equipment do you have? What do you feel comfortable with? Uh, so what was your approach and what kind of <clears throat> pace did you take to this? I mean, that's, yeah. you know, it's something that every, you know, every, every commercial brewer should or tends to know that, you know, recipes often, you know, even if you're Anheuser-Busch, your recipes change over time. Yeah. You know, they are focus grouping recipes, you know, and, and recipe changes. And what matters most to them is how people perceive that brand. You know, when you have a brand like Dark Apparition at Jackie O's, you know, consumers have a certain expectation mm -hmm. for it. And, you know, yet at the same time, you're constantly looking to make a better version of that. And so, so kind of iterating and improving because everyone knows they can always improve. Everyone can always improve yeah. everything. You always want to be improving, but you don't want to improve in a way that's super obvious uh -huh. you know, to, a, to a drinker. You want it to be a natural progression where they don't yep. realize why they like it a little bit more this time than they did last time. Talk to me about, for you, what those parameters look like and kind of moving and shifting these things to, to keep up with what consumers expect for it now. Yeah, so it was like, you know, identifying what needed to be increased. So let's say it's finishing gravity, residual sugar left, and finished beer. So first step was, well, let's really max out the mash time. Yeah. You know, with, not with like caramel malt but with two row you know let's get more base malt in there let's get this stuff converting a little bit more let's lower the mash temperature let's get down to 149 148 yeah. let's try to get just pull more sugar out because at some point the yeast is going to crap out and that's what's going to be left it's not that you're by lowering the you know mash temp you might be creating more fermentable sugar but at some point that yeast is going to stop yeah. and that sugar is still going to be there and so we started there, 
and you know gained maybe a, a point or two play-doh on that finishing gravity but knew that we needed a little bit more and then it became well let's add more sugar let's maybe add 30 minutes to the boil and through all these parameters and just you know brewing dark at maybe doing a 20 or 40 barrel batch every other week or so we were able within the course of a couple months to kind of dial that in get that up and feel comfortable about the price of of you know goods and 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 the cost of all the materials going in and also the time how it worked with the brew house the brew schedule how it was working tanks yeast so on um now that i'm able to have this fresh start with private press it's able to take like all those experiences and focus them into this new thing have these new parameters this is you know i want to hit 32 33 34 play starting gravity and i want that to be finishing somewhere between 14 and 12 ideally yeah it doesn't always work that way especially when you don't have your own brew house and you're playing around on uh someone else's brew house or multiple different brew houses right um so you know the that target keeps moving but it's it's been really fun to just continue to press on with these things less sparging water right um you know longer boils keep it going you know and more sugar or different sugar sources um i'm playing around with a lot of different recipes right now so each one's a little different but you start to find that pocket and then you just try to focus and and send it through that 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 area are you are you considering and brewing these beers as as single things or are you building you know kind of a library of of stock to pull from yes my intention with private press is that all the releases will be a blended expression so brewing you know multiple different uh imperial stouts uh multiple barley wines and putting each of those batches into different types of bourbon and or spirit barrels uh, so that, you know, within one uh, batch of 16 barrels, I might have four different threads or two different threads. Maybe it's a weeded bourbon barrel or a rye bourbon barrel so that when it comes time to assemble these beers uh, or these releases, I can really select these, the most expressive threads so I can get that roundest expression of whatever I'm searching for, be it a, you know, uh, an adjunct heavy stout possibly or something that really um, kind of expresses the wood uh, character or something that's maybe a little spirit forward so everything's going to be blended so I'm just building out this library so one of the things that I always find interesting is how you build these components you know like you know, how you think about the parameters of these various components because you know it is and you know, I hear it fairly often. I love to you know, brew a bunch of beers, and then and even Corey will say that. Like, I brew all these different base beers, and then I want to blend for specific things. But what you end up with in your blend is a direct result of how you think about some of these things that you're putting into those barrels, these various threads. You know, you are creating the pigments that you'll then you know paint with later on. But you know, there has to be some thought that goes into how you create these component things now um talk to me a little bit about uh you know some of the ways that you build these Mm -hmm. characterfully different expressions of barrel aged beers uh that you can then blend later on 
So I don't try to overthink too many things. Um, I try to keep it fairly simple. So doing something like an imperial stout that has a high percentage of wheat in it. Yeah. That's its own thread. Uh, doing one that has um, a, a half of the base malt is Munich. That would be a different thread. Uh, then you can get into you know different types of uh, sugars that are added, be it honey or maple or brown sugar or uh, liquid malt extract or dry malt extract. You're going to get you know light or dark or medium. Um, you can get all these different um, you know hues, if you will, or variations of right, right. imperial stout and try to keep it kind of like really focused upon that you know everything's got a little bit of oats in it everything's got some munich sure, sure. um this might have special b uh but that one might have uh you know wireman uh 125 or special w um very similar but right. a light you know difference um what for me it really changes is what barrels those go into okay so as i'm ordering barrels and knowing what beer is going into those trying to select two or three or maybe even four different things that that can build off of and then knowing that they're going to age for 10 14 24 months right and understanding how to listen and work with the barrels as you're tasting them as they're reaching their mature um age um, and really focusing on what that barrel is telling you and in the back of your head thinking about what the beer is that you're assembling. So for me, when I was tasting barrels and I developed this kind of idea or this um, process over thousands of barrels that I've tasted at Jack Yeo's over sure. the last 12, 13 years, um, where do I feel it? That's the first thing I always focus on. If it's in my throat, if I feel an alcohol burn in my throat, that's uncomfortable. That barrel's not ready. Needs more time. If I start to feel the warmth, it's getting closer. If it's on my collarbone or, most importantly, within my chest, that's warm and that's comforting. And that made me know that this beer is in a really good spot right now. I have some time that it can sit here and continue to age but this is is ready um this is presenting itself in a very warm uh capacity and that's what i want my beers um and then the other part of it was we're making really intense beer styles putting them into really intense vessels being these spirit barrels and they need to age um mainly because they're really intense and we need that micro-oxygenation, that age to dull the beer, the beer to stale it down, to make it so it's palatable and smooth. And, uh, and you know, so the age and the warmth and listening to that beer and that barrel and then finding its spot is what I'm really focused on. And Oxygenation, you know, that that's... I think a good point to make because that is that this process that gen, you know that transforms these beers it is micro oxygenation mm-hmm. you know, as well as you know picking up of, of wood character you know vanillins and uh, you know and tannins from from that barrel. So how do you you know design ingredients you know for these uh, you know these beers in order to 
pull the best aspects of oxidation out of them and not the worst aspects. Um, always having a decent amount of uh, dark malts. Always, you know, that benefits these beers. That's why Imperial Stouts are always just this sure. like paramount, you know, beer style uh, for barrel aging. So always making sure that there's a, you know, some black malt in there for sure. Maybe roasted barley, maybe not. Um, definitely a heavy amount of chocolate malt. Yeah. Um, the you dark. Say, what do you say heavy? What does that mean? Um, oh, percentage wise, I don't. Maybe close to eight to ten percent. Um, you know, like maybe throw an extra bag in. If you think that there's enough, maybe just toss an extra okay. bag in. Okay. On a twenty barrel system, let's say. Let's just. You know, yeah. If you got 150, uh, just make it 200. <laughs> um, and then just using those really deep caramel malts, those like yeah. burnt ones, you know, these are these are these kind of deeper, really rough, robust characters that are that will like slowly fade and mellow out with that oxidation. And they're still going to compete with that barrel character and all those intensities will just slowly come together. But it takes time, and you gotta like, you gotta give it time, and you also need to like pay attention to how the beer is changing. Doesn't mean you gotta taste it every day right, or right. even every week, but you gotta take notes. You gotta be present, and you know a barrel program needs attention, just like any other program. But yeah, sometimes it's 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 sometimes it's the last thing on the list, and you know what makes me so excited about private press is it's the only thing on the list <laughs> yeah, sure, sure i'm not worried about right you know ipas cans distribution any of that it's how do i make the best beer that i can make what did that tasting process look like at jackie o's you mentioned you had thousand barrels i mean that's that this is a major undertaking to taste those mm-hmm. considering how quickly these kinds of beers also shred the palate of anybody that's yeah, tasting them like yeah. you try to move through 20 or 30 barrels in a day mm-hmm. great you might be able to reasonably taste that many but okay you've 30 barrels in well you, you've got yeah. 970 more good luck tasting through those you know that yeah. like, that's a enormous undertaking to kind of stay on top of it what are your broader parameters for figuring out when and you know how to get the most value out of that kind of tasting and sampling process Um, the biggest thing for me was doing it as often as I could. Okay. Um, it was just practice anything that you want to like, you know, get good at develop instinct. Um, just like kind of have this, 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 um, develop style or palette. You just got to like do it a lot. It doesn't mean 10,000 hours, right? Exactly. Exactly. Path to mastery. Yep. Yep. So, you know, and it's also important that like, okay, I don't taste more than 30 barrels. Um, sometimes I would get in crunches with like bourbon right, barrel dark right. aberration where there was like 80, 80 barrels that or I had to taste through 100 of them and I'd break them up into three days or something. And, and those, were, those were pretty difficult. Sure. Um, you take notes and they start off really uh, specific and then you get down to the bottom and it's like bomb. With an exclamation mark, and you're like, "All right, tasting done." Um, and uh, but you just have to like, you have to do it a lot, right? And right. you got to take notes, and you got to be able to go back and do it again. And um, so at Jackie, it was luckily I didn't have to taste everything all at once. Sure, you know? sure. Each beer was 
like in its in this stall. And so I would taste like the second level of barrels as it was aging. So they'd come from the brewery, stack up, um, and I wouldn't move them until it was time for them to be released. And I taste the that second level uh, starting around four months or so. And I taste them periodically just to kind of monitor where that heat was. Is it com- is yeah. it uncomfortable or is it comforting? Um, that neck to collarbone to chest character. And then once I knew that was going to be ready, which was always around a year, uh, then downstack everything. Lab would come in, pull samples of every single barrel to run micro on. They would also pull a 50 milliliter sample for me. Then I'd come in and then I'd take notes on the 50 milliliter samples. I'd pull 25, smell, taste, swallow, notes. If it was bad, I'd dump it. If it was good, that, 20, that extra 25 milliliters in that 50 milliliter um, tube would then go into a glass. This would give me an idea of what all the good barrels tasted like together, all of them. And then I taste that, take notes. Then I'd wait a couple weeks, lab results come back, eliminate all bad barrels. Taste again, all the good barrels, figure that out. And then if there were excellent barrels, maybe hold them back. Maybe the blend needs the extra excellent barrels. If there are not so good barrels, maybe kick them out or... Um, or maybe blend them in because we needed that volume for distribution. Um, so there was a lot of angles that went into it. Sure. And then there were just plenty of days where I'd just go in and just taste barrels, just to taste barrels, check in on things. Right, right. Oh, this is six months old. I haven't drilled into it yet. Let's, let's drill, you know, taste four of them, get an idea. What does your language, uh, you know, and your de- what do your what do you, descriptors matter to you? You know, this is also a fascinating subject for me because, you know, when we taste things, we have subconscious or, or, you know, reactions to these things that don't have words to them. And yet, you know, various brewers also develop their own language for understanding, you know, what these flavors are in their beers. You know, Lauren Limbach in New Belgium has a very yep. clear language yep. that she's developed she sure for herself. Um, you know, do you have that kind of language and how do you describe some of these various elements of, of the beer from a sensorial perspective? So typically it was always around the first six to eight barrels I would taste uh, or like do sensory on. Um, I would explain as much as I could. Um, I'm not writing a paragraph. It's, it, sure. it's, it's one line, but it's it's distinctive, um, you know, aroma, flavor, mouthfeel. Yeah, yeah. Um, if anything is off or seems fruity. Uh, I would have a color coding thing. I'd have a, a seems fruity. That's a that's a, a mark against in your your book. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it would have. Is I, that because would, of the potential spoiler? Or yes, is, okay. exactly, exactly. Like not fruity like raisin right, or right. stone fruit, but like fruity like cherries or raspberries. Right, or, right. Um, so then I'd put like a red question mark next to the fruity ones, or if they were just terrible, it was just bad, and then yeah. red through it. So then I could go with spray paint to that barrel. And X it out. Okay. (laughs) So there's no, like, that's not making it back to the brewery. Um, But after those six to eight uh, barrels, I would then identify what the pocket was. So there is, there is these characters that keep coming up and now I know what my pocket is. That's where I want this beer to land within that. And then what I focus on is, barrels that fall outside of the pocket, whether it be 
in a positive sense or yeah. in a negative sense. Sure. And that's what I would focus on more. And I could simply write in the pocket. <laughs> and because, I mean, at, at some point, it just, it, you just start repeating yourself. And, and so I'd rather do that with one word right. than with 10, you know? And at some point, you got to go home, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure, um, sure. So it was all about, you know, finding that pocket and then identifying the barrels that were exceptional and yeah. the ones that were dismal. <laughs> and what, what does an exceptional barrel taste like? You know, how do you, I, obviously these are all relative and I know these are hard you know, yeah, questions yeah, to try to yeah. answer. To me, it was, it wasn't, I mean, it, you know, it all, it depend on the base beer, of course, and what, sure. and, and what it was, but it's more of a feeling than anything. It makes you, it, it like, it smacks you. You like, wow. You know, or like it, it evokes an emotion. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, that says like, hey, I'm here. You know, I'm not just one of these barrels in a pocket. You know, I'm here. And that, in, like I keep saying, it happens on both ends of the spectrum. Right. So you have to like be present when you're, when you're tasting. Like if you can be in a quiet area. Um, if you can maybe have somebody else with you, or I did most of it by myself. Um, but you want this, this area where you're focused on that, and that's what you're doing, and, and you're, you're actively doing it. I can't stress that enough. Because you'll just miss it. It will just be another pocket barrel, and it will just go in. And, um, or it can be set aside and make something really special that makes your customers and it gets, it's, it's part of the story too. I mean, yeah, there's more yeah. to it than just the beer taste exceptional, <laughs> you know, it's like, sure. it, like these hand selected things, these reserve things, that's what gives the blender or the brewer or even the brewery. It's, it's credit, you know, like it's like they really know what they're doing. You know, these happy accidents don't happen anymore. You know, uh, this is, there's intent, there's vision, there's palette, there is this drive behind it. It's not just an afterthought. It's not a couple barrels in the corner. This is identity. You're a brewer and a curator in that sense, and that you're creating the thing, and then you're selecting from your things, and you're building something from these things that you select. And that kind of curatorial act is as important to the art of creation as the brewing is to Absolutely. it. And, uh, you know, and so overlooking or, or treating that one, you know, with a callousness or a quickness rather than this kind of studied intentionality would seem to be as bad of an idea as saying, let's just throw some barley in the, <laughs> and it'll, it'll probably work yeah. out. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there, it's extremely expensive beer, you know, like right. the beer itself is expensive. The time and the rent, that's going into it is way more than anything else. You right, know, the, right. the barrels are expensive, the racks. I mean, it just goes on and on. So why would you just push it through, you know? Right, right. But it's easier said than done. Sure. Depends on what's happening at the brewery. I can't tell you how many times that it was just like at the end of a 10-hour day, I was like, and now I got to go to the barrel room and taste 36 barrels because – we're packaging it next week or I'm, I've got to be at a beer festival next week and that's when they need to package it. So I got to move through all these barrels and I'm exhausted and the blend might've turned out okay, but it could have been better. 
guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I couldn't be more happy to just be sinking all of my efforts into these 10 little releases and creations <laughs> that I'm going to put forth in the, in the first kind of annual cycle of private press yeah. and to be able to brew twice as many barrels as I'm actually going to need so that I can, of course, take into account loss and, sure. you know, and spoilers, but also be able to select the most expressive threads that are ready at that moment and put them together and hopefully create something special and unique and something that speaks of myself and of the brewing effort of private press. And then add a bunch of vanilla to it and a whole bunch of other yeah, adjuncts. Yeah. At that's least what the kids a pound want. per barrel. Yeah, 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 yeah. I gotta, I gotta, yeah, I gotta start taste testing marshmallows here soon. But <laughs> let's. Uh, I, I joke, but you know, Me too. at the same time, um, you know that kind of ingredient approach to stouts and and even now barley wines, strangely enough, uh, has become more and more uh, uh, standard. You know, in this kind of sphere. Talk to me a little bit about how you think about designing these kinds of big beers and uh, working on ingredient processes for some of the more popular ingredients now added to Imperial Stouts. Um, it's a great question, Jamie. Um, so what I'm hoping I'm able to do uh, with private press is now that there is the whole pastry stout movement and those are... Uh, all over the place now and, and they're getting a, a lot of excitement i'm hoping that there's an undercurrent of right. beer consumer that is now going back to i'm not really old school but something that's a little bit more pure um something that's a little bit more of the barrel of the base beer um you know for me and many of my other peers to think back to like when you first had like bourbon county vanilla rye like that moment or even the Bourbon County coffee stout um, or, you know, like these hints of things and these, and this nuance still bold and big, um, but not over the top. Um, of course the sugar content's going to be higher now. Um, but um, I'm really just, yeah, I, I want to have some tact to it. I want to have some tact to it. I want to have, um, I, I don't want it to be over the top. But I, I want it to be loud, but just kind of teetering on that edge. Uh, this is a, you know, I mean, it's a, a constant struggle that brewers have, you know, of making the products that their consumers want to mm -hmm. buy, which are these loud and sweet things, and then also wanting to make a nuanced or even a, you know, uh, historically looking or tradition looking, you know, kind of, you know, including more smoked malt or dark, you know, yeah, stuff yeah. that, that may not necessarily be within what, it, you know, is currently considered cool or which may elicit like, you know, potentially uh, negative responses from a, a certain number of, uh, you know, beer nerd traders out there. Not to speak ill, you know, they're customers and spending money, yep. but, um, you know, meeting this customer, you know, consumer expectation can be a challenge based, you know, given that, uh, but at the same time, 
tastes are also constantly changing and evolving. And as soon as we think that consumers are only thinking about the beers in this one way, you know, they start to surprise everyone. You know, obviously, I mean, look at the rise, the legitimate rise of loggers now. Yeah. You know, beer writers have been predicting, you know, the rise of loggers for the last 10 or 15 yeah. years. Yeah. And it never happened. And it is actually legitimately it is happening, happening yeah, right is great. now. And brewers yeah. are selling more lager and seeing more demand for those loggers from mm-hmm. their consumers. And they're not just like, you know, a bunch of 65 year old men consumers that met, you know, have just found them and want loggers. They're the same guys that are buying pastry stouts that are, you know, putting a sidecar of, uh, you know, of Pilsner next to it. And uh, it's kind of cool to see that these, you know, the Venn diagrams of these overlapping consumers are, uh, you know, they're more intermixed than we might want to like. It'd be too easy to put them into very simplified, oversimplified buckets but they don't actually live in those buckets. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I'm excited about and trying to do is just this is my expression and of these of these beers, a blend of new and old, uh, you know, kind of this culmination of, 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 of my experience over, over the past decade plus and giving it room where it can also continue to evolve and building that library of all these different beers, different starting gravities, finishing gravities, the ability to read from a barrel. There's a lot of vanilla character in this. You know, that should be paired with Ugandan or this should be paired with a different type of vanilla or just this should go in the vanilla bourbon barrel-aged imperial stout thing I'm going to put out, You're right. you know. Um, and, I'm, you know, hopefully there's, there's people out there that, that find that, attractive or appealing and are interested in that and um, meanwhile there's so many breweries out there that are producing all this different beer and you know it's it's all subjective you know they're all different listeners different drinkers and hopefully there's this small 500 member audience out there that is interested in my you know sure my my new release and uh Yeah, I'm just yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm watching what's going on. I'm I'm loving getting back into the brew house every once in a while, and uh, it feels great to just be sweating <laughs> and getting right, sugar right. all over my car hearts, <laughs> and uh, and you know ripping open a box cutter all the time, and because uh, it's been a long time since I've done sure, that, sure. and it feels great and it feels right and. Right now, I'm just kind of slowly building this stock up, sure. and soon enough, uh, I'm going to let some things loose, and, uh, and then it's game I on. Can't wait, yeah, yeah, game on. Let's talk a little bit about barley wine. We um, we talk a lot about imperial stouts because obviously it's a big style and it's something a lot of people make, but uh, but we don't talk a lot about brewing barley wines. Um, when you know when it comes to your, but you brew a lot of them, and uh, you know probably. Jackie O's sells quite a few of those. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, much it's can be a hard style for other breweries yep. to sell. Um, you know, but you all at Jackie O's staked out a you know a territory yeah. for it. Um, what do you think? You know, was some, or some of the differentiators and why those beers, as barrel aged barley wines, were able to find an audience, and a lot of other barley wines have more challenge finding that kind of audience. Um, so the first barley wine I brewed was in 2008 at Jackie O's, um, and it was it was not very good. 
and I just kept trying. Um, not often, you know, there would be a couple barley wine brews per year, uh, meaning like two, maybe three. But over the course of three, almost four years is when I finally kind of like fell into this brick kiln yeah. thing. And a big part of falling into that brick kiln thing was drinking things like King Henry, uh, King Henry um, Bly's Barley Wine, um, Barrel-Aged Arctic Wolf, um, there was uh, East End, um, you know. Gratitude. Yes, Gratitudes. Um, and I could go on and on. But uh, it was drinking beers like that, trading for them while I was brewing at Jackie O's to like figure, try to figure out, reverse engineer these things, right? And uh, try to figure out what makes these so good, you know, and playing around with things like Marisotter, playing around with American Turo, um, what types of caramel malts. How much Munich needs to be in there? Should there be some dark malt in there? If so, what is that? What's the volume on it? Um, and playing around with these things and then putting them into barrels and seeing what happens. And it was 2012 or so, I think, when the first bourbon barrel brick kiln came out and rum barrel brick kiln. Um, and that's when I kind of settled in on that, that recipe. And then it was like slowly building off of that. I remember at one point we had seven different barley wines aging in spirit barrels in our barrel warehouse. And that's when then it was like, well, let's start blending these and cellar cuvee 11 and let's play with rye. Let's do 100% Maris Otter. Let's do a maple syrup one, which was Iron Furnace. Um, let's do triple IPA. Just don't dry hop it. Throw it in the barrels. It was this like matriarch, patriarch um, version. A uh, bunch of different things. So then it was just like, well, I can play with all these different barley wine um, components. And now it's like, for me, it's a, it's a lot about base malt. Maris Otter's great. Um, Two-row works very well as well. American yeast can make a very good, you know, toffee, caramel, English-style barley wine. Yeah. Um, if you're going to barrel age it, sometimes a touch of chocolate malt really works with the barrel well throws the color a little darker but that doesn't seem to matter too much to anybody right um and don't hop it too much use english varietals you know hit hit it you know around 35 45 ibus um give it a little flavor you don't really need to care about care about um uh, aroma but yeah get some of that dark caramel in there i always throw munich in a little bit of oats um but yeah, and then throw in a little extra sugar, uh, and that can be whatever you feel like. But what uh, what do you what do you like for extra sugar in there? Um, well, I mean, like you know, like I brewed this wheat wine at Jackie's for a long time. Uh, Would you honey? Started brewing that in two thousand eight. Um, honey works worked really well in that beer. Uh, it was this beautiful kind of honeycomb raisin. Um, yeah. type character you know just released a beer here today at side project called maple in the wood it's the first wheat wine that side project had done um we put a lot of maple into that beer and aged it in some maple bourbon barrels and this is tasting awesome and i couldn't be more happy to be putting out the first barrel aged beer or co- uh, collab uh from private press with my good friend Corey and the people at side project um but shameless plug. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, had, I had to do it. Some, some, you know, muttons, dry uh, malt extract works really well. Okay. Um, okay. 
the breeze liquid malt extract, maybe yeah. maybe the amber, or they also have a Munich. Hmm. That one can be kind of nice. Um, brown sugar usually works pretty well as well. I mean, you just kind of play around. You got to find what you like. And this what, is this is a want. hot side process, right? Yes. Not a you know hot side a, process. Not a feeding a fermentation to push alcohol. No, I never did too much of that. Okay. Um, played around a little bit with that with a uh, with a wee heavy recipe, um, which I don't think has come out yet from Jackie O's. Um, man, it's been in barrel for at least 20 months. It's probably tasting really good. It was super almondy when I was leaving. Yeah. Um, Sounds but, delicious. Uh, um, but yeah, I never, uh, haven't done much of adding um, sugar during fermentation. Um, usually long boils and, you know, a, a healthy amount of sugar in the uh, kettle. And then uh, just making sure it gets a good uh, yeast pitch and a, and a lot yeah. of oxygen. I mean, I'm not like breaking any secrets here. Sure, sure. But I think I think it's it's just important that you know you have a good idea of what you want, and you do the research, and that might mean brewing, you know, versions of it that maybe don't quite get to where you want it. But you take notes, you do research, you put the time in, and you have this this vision, this point that you want to hit and you actively work towards it. And that's, what's important to me. So, you know, if you don't mind, one of the big things that everybody learns from are the mistakes that you make in the process. Um, are there any, you know, a couple of, uh, things that over the last couple of years of, of making barrel aged beers that didn't work and that you learned from in the process of that? Yeah. Um, one of the biggest things I learned was that uh, pasteurization is not a bad thing. <laughs> it is not. It's, um, it sounds like there's an expensive story here. Uh, there's an extremely expensive story. Unfortunately, there was there was a very large yeah. infection problem um, at Jackie O's, and th- throughout the the history of Jackie O's, there was there was some issues, um, mainly because in the early years we were doing it out of the basement, out of a little single head. Um, uh, filler that you know I, I wasn't really I guess cleaning that well um, and it was in this tiny little basement with also mixed fermentation happening and you know so we learned a lot about separation and had a couple had a couple pretty good years and then we just had this really bad year where we called about right. 12 or 14 different brands and uh, and and it was hundreds of thousands of cases um, it, it, it was, it was, uh, very unfortunate and it was, it was one of the most difficult times of my brewing career without a doubt. Um, but, uh, we really tightened up on a lot of lab procedures. We got a inline pasteurization unit and, um, and kind of just readjusted and just kept pressing forward. We, we got a new bottling line, got rid of the old one. Uh, there was a, um, uh, lactobacillus acetotolerans um, bug, which is kind of like it's notorious for the um, Bourbon County Bourbon infection. County, right, 2015. Uh, but that thing had embedded itself into our bottling line, and uh, it was just hooking us up every time. God, and it's the um, worst place. Too. It was it, it was really difficult. It was during a period where uh, Jackie O's had grown quite a bit. There was a big expansion that went on, and we tried to hit everything that we could as far as scaling up but unfortunately that little bottling line stayed and all of a sudden you know there was millions of dollars of product going through a you know sixty thousand dollar machine and uh 
it just caught up. It, it caught up to us all. But um, we didn't give up and, you know, and invested in a lot of new QC stuff, one being that flash pasteurizer. And that helped out immensely. Um, I will have a smaller uh, bath pasteurizer at Private Press, but it's just really hard to make barrel-aged beer and especially barrel-aged beer with adjuncts in it. Right, and right. to get then get it into a bottle, have it be shelf or cellar stable. And um, it, it, I don't know how some of us did it before we had all that stuff, when we were still like learning. Like I can pop some really old bottles and they, they're not infected. They don't taste that great because they're old, but um, I don't know how that one's not infected and this one is. Um, but you learn from all these mistakes. Um, that was one of the biggest ones for sure. Um, and the other big one that I learned was like, if a beer doesn't taste good in the fermenter, don't put it into the barrel Yeah, because that might fix it. Like you don't make A-grade beverage with F-grade beverage like you can't right, you can't right. you can't get there like it's not it's just, a magic you know, panacea that's gonna no, make everything better no and you and like yeah like don't avoid happy accidents <laughs> okay just avoid right, them right. and don't even use that word um like it, it's just it, it it's it's not good like really try to think about what you're doing and line it up set it up for success and like do the research put the time in and and then knock it out of the park or try at least know what you want and try to move towards that you it will it will like you know weave and and whatnot and it might land a little bit outside of it but at least try to get it to this one point and don't just cross your fingers and hope because it's taken up space somewhere that could be taken up by a project that is has a good chance of succeeding. Yeah, and and that's what it really comes down to, you know. That's what us as brewers want, and that's what the consumer wants as well. And anything that falls outside of that or or below that just doesn't feel very good. I, I mean, like to you know I, I like to think about it in, in you know these terms that the further and further we get into this, the more discreet. And uh, uh, in-depth consumers' abilities and all of our abilities are to parse small differences between these things. You know, like what you said earlier is true. We got be- we get better and better at brewing this stuff, and there are a lot of great brewers out here in the world now in the world of craft beer. And there's never been a better time for people who enjoy great, well-made craft beer. There is more being made of it now than there ever has been in the history of beer. Um, but what comes along with that, you know, is in every kind of industry where these things continue to develop, the other thing that develops is the customer's ability to parse even smaller and smaller and smaller differences between these things that no matter where you get, you never get to a point where there isn't some difference between average, good, and great. There will always be that difference between average, good, and great. The difference between those things may get narrower, but at the same time, the you know customer's ability to discern those differences also improves you yeah. know, at the same exact time. And so um, what you're saying, I think, rings true and that having that intentionality about how you create these things um, and just thinking that people won't notice or this might be good enough or we might just get lucky um that's 
more of a losing strategy as, as yeah, consumers' yeah. tastes. Yeah, all I mean, to and as, as you know, thinking of like a brewer that takes it very passionately, like you know, you're you're like an artist, and you want you want these things to to resonate. You want good feedback, and it's not always going to happen. But yeah. um, man, if you can reduce the amount of negative feedback that you get especially sure. like on social media right. or <laughs> untapped right. or however right. you know tied in you are to those things um you know that that stuff doesn't help anything right. you know right. i mean it's 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 it can get pretty toxic and you know going through that um that infection period at jackie o's i mean that was that was really hard um really hard uh and i wouldn't wish that on anybody so right. you know just like I, uh, I can't stress it enough. Like, know, know or have a good idea of what you want to do and really think about how you're going to get it to the point that you want. If you want it to just be on draft, great. Then, you know, work towards that. If you want to put it into a bottle, you got a whole, you got a, some other things that you have to consider. You got to really think about how are you going to do that? Is it going to be stable? Um, right. You know, lab testing, all this different stuff, maybe pasteurization. Um, but uh, we uh, man, talked I, to Doug yeah. Dozark from yeah. Cycle oh, at yeah. length about pasteurization. Yeah, me too. Uh, Doug's one of my very, very yeah. dear friends, yeah. and we have all. I mean, I, I, I know, uh, you know, I've, I've formed all these opinions and and these these approaches from you know being close friends with with, with people right. like Doug sure. and Corey and a, a lot of people here at the festival, and you know, and a long relationship with Sean Hill and. And a, a ton of people. I feel so sure, so blessed to have these amazing friends in this industry. And we've all shared a lot of information. Right. And we've all commiserated with ourselves over our failures and our shortcomings. And we all, you know, are still here making beer. And we're still a, 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 some sort of a driving force in this, in this yeah. craft beer canon that exists here in the U.S. And... Um, we're just trying to stick around and be relevant, right? And so you just got to, you know, step it up. So what's the goal and what, what's the definition of success for you and for private press? Um, when, when will you know that you've made it? I'd like to say when 500 members sign up for the, uh, the first kind of annual uh, membership uh, cycle. Uh, that's, that's my main goal right now. Um, if I can deliver some amazing beer to them that make them feel like their, um, them signing up was worth it. then that's, that's success to me. Um, I'm going to try my hardest to make the best beer that I can. And I hope that's good enough. And, um, it's, it's just kind of like, I don't know. It's pretty straightforward and honest. I'm just this is these are this is the beer that I love to make and I want to make the loveliest expression of it that I can. Well, there's nowhere to hide and there's no one else to blame nope, if there's it's just, just me. you. Yep. And uh, and that's yep. it. Once again, I'm answering all the emails and <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I just hope that it's more positive than it, than it's negative. Sure. Sure. Well, I think that brings us to a close. Before we get out of here, GD Chillers is ready to meet your challenge. Kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. 
SS Brutech has the knowledge and experience you need. And Captain Pabst Seabird IPA is now available exclusively in Wisconsin and Chicago. Brad, if people want to learn more about Private Press, where do they find you? Go to privatepressbrewing.com, sign up for the mailing list, or uh, check us out at Private Press Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. If you've enjoyed the conversation, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and become a subscriber, supporter, and a member of our family. Uh, we greatly appreciate it, and it helps us keep doing what we do. Um, Brad Clark, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew. 